This evening's talk <coughs> will be an exploration of the third and the fourth foundation or the establishment of mindfulness. But we'll begin uh, with just a, a very a brief uh, uh, continuing exploration of the second foundation of mindfulness, which we uh, looked at this morning in the morning reflection. And I'd like to begin with a question. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? So just a little bit more uh, on regarding the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings. In Pali the word is Veda, Vedana Nupasana. With this foundation of mindfulness, as we uh, looked at this morning, potentially being a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. The potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling is that it's at this point in our experience that we can uh, have the direct immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, clinging, and the habituated reactions of various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant, the feelings of unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, usually spoken of as neutral, that we can in moments just see, experience, and know the phenomena, whatever it is, and know the attendant feeling tone. And that, just be that. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind aren't disturbed. It's a moment of ease, a moment of peace. What for many of us are habituated storylines of things such as he made me angry. She made me feel really terrible. Or he made me feel really so happy. Or this place or these people make me feel so peaceful or this place these people make me feel miserable etc. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feeling tones that arise the habituated storylines of relegating the responsibility for the feelings to others, relegating uh, our feelings uh, to others, 
that they're res- as though they're responsible for it, the responsibility for them, this begins to lose, they begin to lose their strength, these habituated storylines. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things really clearly, putting the blame on others for various reactive thoughts and the actions that may follow feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. It isn't really realistic. Meaning that it's not really the way things work, where they, the way they actually work. With the simple perception of pleasant and unpleasant and a careful attention to these feelings, when we begin to see, we, we do begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are really within us. Meaning that we ourselves are primarily responsible for the feelings that we experience. And so we begin to understand that we really can't blame others or blame something for the way that we feel or for the subsequent actions of body and mind that might follow the perceived feeling tone. And therein really lies the opportunity for relinquishing the painful contraction of blaming. And simply begin to recognize pleasant and unpleasant and that just be that. So this second establishment or domain of mindfulness in our practice contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves. The feelings in the feelings. Vedna, Nupassana. (coughs) An amazing um, (coughs) aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the six sense doors with what we can call, and what's often called in practice, bare awareness. With bare awareness providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors or various mental states. Whether we're practicing vipassana, mindfulness-based insight practice, or whether we're practicing samatha, concentration practice, or whether we're practicing metta, or one of the Brahma-vihara practices. So this coloration or modification that happens uh, in relationship to phenomena, 
the, by the various mental factors and mental states that arise is really the third domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind. And in Pali it's citta nupasana. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So, for example, we go to the marketplace. And that's uh, the marketplace of life. (laughs) In our case here, the marketplace of the lunch food display. (coughs) What goes on in the mind? The marketplace of where to do walking meditation this particular hour. Or the marketplace of which shirt or socks to put on today. Many marketplaces. What goes on in the mind? In your mind? Living here in Taos um, has provided some excellent practice opportunities for me. Uh, This place where uh, many people visit a place that many, many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace of the abundant forms of human-created beauty that abound here. When I first moved here, I went uh, through a period of practice um, about 18 years ago or so when I first uh, began living here where I'd uh, walk down the street and look in the shop windows out of interest, curiosity. And I'd watch my body and my mind. So for a few minutes, there would be awareness of seeing, just seeing. Seeing various human-created forms, colors, objects, kind of bare attention for a little while. And then I would notice the coloration in the mind of wanting, kind of leaning into it. And then I'd notice the coloration of mind of a sometimes very strong seeming need, as though I must have that or this, or that one over there. Greed. Greed coming. Greed coloring a moment's experience of seeing. So I decided, as I was noticing this, that I would just continue with this practice in a very purposeful way. So I'd take myself into town, and I'd walk along, And I would look in the shop windows and do it as a practice over and over and over again. And eventually, it took a while, but eventually the practice yielded what was really and continues to be really a much relieving fruit of seeing the beauty of these human-made objects and arising in the mind would come 
great appreciation, or still, still does, great appreciation for the beauty that I was observing and uh, great appreciation for the tremendous skills and creative sensitivities that made it possible for these things to be made by human beings and admiration and all those kinds of um, very wholesome states but not needing not must having just seeing and appreciating it wasn't an immediate process though I mean an immediate fruit took quite a while To sustain and to deepen in our practice, in and with our practice, to really see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart and of mind that are required of us are honesty and humility, self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So for instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion, it doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is is that, that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states, bringing mindfulness right to the greed or the the fear or the anger or the grief. And as any of you know who have tried this to whatever degree, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to really see yourself as you are with an open mind, an open and compassionate heart. And because you see yourself as you are without judgment, you don't try to project a different image either to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was quite a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right said this about humility and these are her words that is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer the austerity of humility to see things as they are to see my inner being as it is good or bad to observe it as it is without defending it without justifying it without interpreting or judging it without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said.
There's a story that His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I heard uh, him tell uh, regarding himself in a Dharma teacher conference that I attended a number of years ago. He said that um, he was taken window shopping uh, in some big city, I think it was may have been London, I'm not sure, uh, to an area where there were uh, lots of small shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and uh, small mechanical systems. And the person who took His Holiness there um, to this particular part of the city knew uh, that he was quite interested uh, and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. Well, the Dalai Lama said that at first he found himself, when he found himself looking in the windows of the shops, he said at first he was just really simply seeing with a very open curiosity and lots of interest. And then he said all of a sudden he realized that he wanted everything. He said he wanted all of it. He said he didn't even know what most of it was for, but he, he found himself just wanting it anyways. Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself uh, uh, now and then, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my aversions? And so now taking uh, a bit of a look (coughs) at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation. So a moment of deep calm. A mindful moment of directly knowing this wholesome quality of calm. No thoughts about it. Just it as it is. Just calm, just tranquility. And then, maybe quickly followed by the unwholesome mind state of grasping, wanting it to never leave. Directly knowing this experience, this experience of wanting, this experience of grasping in the mind too. Bringing attention to that, being mindful of that, without judgment. Mindfulness can know the mental factor or coloration of the mind of wanting, the mind of greed, within the greed itself. Or the mental factor, the colorations of anger or hatred or fear or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself. How it acts how it presents itself, knowing its changing nature, its taste or flavor in the mind and its effect in or on the body, and its ending, its its cessation in any moment. A moment of mind consciousness 
might be colored by the wholesome states of mind of faith or delight or colored by dullness or some form of aversion. And as I'm sure each of you have experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience. Maybe a breath, just a breath, in relationship to a breath, in relationship to a bodily sensation, a sound, a taste, a memory, a plan, some image in the mind. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from a Buddhist perspe- the Buddhist perspective, there's a long and detailed list of the many and various wholesome and unwholesome mental factors that may quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience as the process of the Dhamma and the development of concentration and mindfulness unfold and blossom. So for instance, mindfulness knowing the wholesome mind states of calm, joy, delight, tranquility, faith, appreciation, peacefulness, equanimity, and the unwholesome mind states of judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear, anger, hatred, irritation, all in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing consciousness or hearing consciousness or smelling consciousness or tasting, touching, thinking, mind consciousness. In relationship to using language this way around uh, consciousness, I think it's helpful to understand that in the Buddha Dhamma, Consciousness is spoken about and attended to as consciousness related to the experiences that are perceived through each of the six sense doors. And that's how the Buddha uh, taught his students. So it became very clear there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, touch consciousness, and thinking or mind consciousness. Consciousness is always related to some experience, some sense door experience. So a reminder that I mentioned in the first uh, talk about mindfulness of the body in the body. The essential nature of mindfulness 
is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation of experience. So this third establishment or domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana, mindful awareness of mental factors, mindful awareness of states of mind, seeing and knowing the colorations of consciousness (coughs) in themselves. And in a future Dhamma talk, I will talk more about this in uh, detail, particularly in terms of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that come up for us. The last aspect (coughs) of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of Dhammas. In Pali, the word is Dhammanupasana. And dhammas, in this case, can be translated as the truth, or the way of things, or the natural laws. This domain of mindful awareness can be grounded or can be rooted quite specifically in any of the six sense door experiences, such as one's perception and consciousness of hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, or thinking. Mindfulness of dhammas can also be rooted in the feeling tones that we explored uh, this morning and a little bit this evening. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, also can be grounded, can be rooted in what are called the five hindrances. And these five hindrances being sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt, and the grasping mind or the aversive mind. This domain or foundation of mindfulness can also be rooted in any of the seven factors of enlightenment. The first being mindfulness. The first and overarching factor of enlightenment being mindfulness. The second being investigation of states. The third being energy or effort. The fourth, joy. The fifth, tranquility. The sixth, concentration. And the seventh, equanimity. The particular and wonderful specialty, so to say, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that it sees any of these experiences through the doors of Dhamma, through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things. 
whether experiences in the physical or in the mental realm. This fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of truth. So, to try to make this a little more clear, for instance, speaking briefly this evening about just one of the very important and insightful doors that we can walk through in this fourth domain of mindfulness. And this is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially pay attention to and clearly recognize that every experience of mind and body is always changing through every sense door, through every physical or mental phenomenon that occurs. It's always changing. It's impermanent. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything around us, begins and ends, arises, changes, disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. And as practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, to clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural phenomenon. What ordinarily appears to be a steady flow of experience even within the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we usually or ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion or the delusion being as though it's all happening with an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing away on the most minute level, second by second by second. Every experience is anicca, the Pali word for impermanent. And this is the first universal characteristic that can be uh, understood seen, uh, sensed, and known through this fourth foundation of mindfulness. And because of anicca, because of impermanence, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And yet we continue on through our lifetime searching for some thing or some experience that will just finally satisfy. 
permanently satisfied, finally make us permanently happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha. And this is the second universal characteristic. So for instance, viewing specific sensorial experience through the doorway of the fact that it's actually ultimately unsatisfactory is practice rooted in the fourth domain of mindfulness, Dhamma Nupasana. This doesn't mean that we don't ever experience pleasantness. We do. We experience pleasantness. For instance, these last few days, beautiful spring days, the tulips, the daffodils, the trees leafing out. We do experience lots of pleasant experience. But we clearly begin to know, we clearly begin to know and accept the brief momentary experience of whatever it is, in this case pleasant experience, with no grasping, no clinging, as a deeper and deeper understanding and wisdom blossoms through our practice. So there can be pleasant. It's just pleasant. There's no suffering in relationship to it, which then it's no longer pleasant if we're hanging on. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know through this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta in Pali. Sometimes it's pronounced anatta. And this is the truth that all experience, all phenomena is selfless. All phenomena, all experiences arise totally dependent on many, many conditions that have occurred over time and that come together in a moment of the arising of that particular experience. All phenomena, all experience is totally interdependent and contingent in its existence and is constantly changing. Both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming set or static place in the world. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, static selfness. Which is basically what not-self means. As we begin to directly experience and know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the third universal, universal, new third universal characteristic of anatta, not self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The not 
itself characteristic of all phenomena really shows up quite naturally. And often in unexpected and pretty subtle ways. And so we begin to truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, there's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. And our relationship to our life begins to change. As this becomes a deeper understanding and accepted and accepted, we begin to accept it, we actually begin to relax more and more deeply into just simply and more clearly being here with things as they are. It's a great relief that begins to occur for us, an ease in being. There's a really wonderful metaphorical teaching. Uh, It's uh, Stephen Mitchell, the author Stephen Mitchell's rendition of the Narcissus story, and I'd like to share this with you. Stephen Mitchell is also a, a poet and a translator, as well as a, a writer. Uh, of he, He's done a lot of this kind of uh, retelling. This happened, and this is Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. In a conversation with one of his students, the Buddha offers a brief and important and clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. And this is, these are the Buddha's words. Contemplation of impermanence should be, cultivating, should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. 
For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, Megia is the name of the student he was speaking to. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. And so we go along in our practice. And when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up. It opens up the simple and beautiful door to freedom. The simple and beautiful door leading to liberation. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma. Every single experience, every single phenomena holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, is within everything, simply to be seen, to be known. If we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly. If we just really take the time to look carefully. The truth is right here to be seen directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart, and with each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara is nirvana. Within the whirlpool, we could say, of our ordinary lives, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we stand still, so to say, cool, calm, concentrated, focused, and mindfully attentive. In that moment, we're no longer continuing to be conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring, and consequently then being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant caught in the whirlpool of I like it, I don't like it. We're no longer caught unaware in the whirl of continually, unwittingly moving around and around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention a mindful attention and wake up. Mindfulness is the primary tool, the good medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, we take the medicine and purify the sickness and heal ourselves. The process will 
inevitably unfold and naturally blossom if we practice in the right way. We really do have the possibility to live with the deepest ease of well-being and the brightest wisdom and deepest compassion. To be really, truly awake, free, truly healed in this life. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, an undisturbed heart. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going no different than anything else in the world. Really nothing to argue with and nothing to cling to. One of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, speaks about the fact that essentially, he says, there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is maybe a, a huge relief to those who think that they have to practice many things, have to practice many dhammas in order to be liberated. In Pali, uh, the word for this one dhamma is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance, and which can really be understood as it's elaborated on in the commentaries to the suttas, as a concentrated, clear, focused mindfulness. So, from this perspective, we can say that mindfulness really is the one Dhamma that we need to practice. And some words from the Buddha in his speaking about mindfulness in this case, as a factor of enlightenment. If mindfulness is present in oneself, these are the Buddha's words now, if mindfulness is present in oneself, a bhikkhu, a bhikkhuni, a yogi, knows that it's present. If mindfulness is absent, a yogi knows that it's absent in himself or herself. And one knows how the unarisen factor of mindfulness comes to arise and knows how to develop mindfulness, how the development of mindfulness comes about. And the Buddha goes on. Rooted in careful attention, careful attention is declared to be the chief accomplished in careful attention, with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass, mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. Monks, yogis, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant 
slope and incline towards the roof peak. So too, when a yogi or a monk develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all the other factors of enlightenment, he, she, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. So, closing our talk this evening with a short poem from Rumi. And then a question. This is Rumi's poem. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. And the question, the same question we began our talk with. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? And let's sit quietly for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.